Well, I invite you to take a copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And as we've been mentioning for several weeks now, uh, we're going to begin a series in the book of Acts. And uh, so this morning we'll look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you're using uh, one of the Bibles, you'll find a Bible in the chair in front of you, underneath the chair in front of you. If you're using one of those Bibles, uh, you'll find the passage on page 909, 909, okay? Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive uh, after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray once again that you would be with us now by your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would multiply our efforts during this time for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish through our preaching and through our listening what we could never do. Lord, we pray that you would bear good fruit for your glory as we turn to your word. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin uh, 2014, I am excited to start this new series in the book of Acts. My goal is that as we start the book of Acts this morning, that we will finish the book of Acts before Christmas, okay? So 2014 will be the book of Acts. And now, why Acts? If we're going to spend a year in Acts, why spend, why focus on the book of Acts? There's many other books in the Bible that we could give our attention to in 2014. Why focus on the book of Acts? Well, Acts records the rapid growth of the early church, and the rapid spread of the gospel across the Roman Empire. It is a fascinating story. And there are a lot of significant themes that run through the book of Acts, and we'll be highlighting and and talking about any number of these themes, but there's one theme that we will constantly return to, and that is the theme of mission. Doing mission in the context of community, in the context of the church. Mission is is a dominant theme in the book of Acts. As we think about the book of Acts in our own context, situation, our own story as a church, we have to say that God has been good to us as a church. You know, some of you know our story well, some of you might not know it at all. 
In 2010, uh, we sold our property where we were uh, on South Old Bel Air Road and moved over here, and we had about 30 or 40 people in 2010. And God has tremendously blessed over these last three years. I mean, the last three years have really, by God's grace, been marked by blessing. We've witnessed an increase in conversions, an increase in spiritual growth, an increase in numerical growth, and giving, and leadership development, and outreach, and missions, and numerous other areas. You know, in my first seven or eight years as the pastor here at Berea, it seemed that there, it was so difficult to get traction on anything at times. And in the last three years, at times, it seems that we're doing all we can to keep a step ahead of the growth. And we should be thankful. We should praise God for that. But listen, the work by no means is done. If anything, it is just beginning. There is so much more for us to do as a church in terms of gospel transformation, in terms of what needs to happen in our own hearts as the gospel changes us, and in terms of gospel advancement, in terms of the gospel making an impact through us in terms of our community and the nations. And Acts, as much as any book in the Bible, sets this mission before us and calls us to it. And so I am excited and I'm hopeful about the future. And as we study the book of Acts together, may 2014 be a year in which God presses us deeper into the gospel, deeper into community, and deeper into the mission of God. The mission of God to transform us and our community and the nations with the gospel. As we open up in this first chapter in the book of Acts, we see that Jesus is preparing His disciples for this mission. And as Jesus prepares the disciples for mission, we learn four truths about the mission of God. And this will serve as our outline this morning, the four truths about the mission of God. Jesus is the mission. Jesus empowers the mission. Jesus defines the mission. And Jesus completes the mission. So those are our four points, okay? First of all, let's consider Jesus is the mission. Look there in verses 1 through 3, and we read these words. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. To them He presented Himself alive after His sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during the forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, initially we see here that Acts is a second volume in a two-part series, right? So Luke refers to the first volume in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the first book, Luke is referring to the Gospel of Luke. That's the first book he's referring to. You know, the New Testament begins with four books, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke here is referring to the Gospel of Luke. That was the first work that he had written. And Luke is writing this two-volume set. So so Luke is the first part, and now Acts is the second part. Uh, Acts continues the story. Uh, Luke is writing this two-volume set to a man named Theophilus. You see that as well in verse 1. And he's writing this two-volume work to Theophilus in order to persuade Theophilus that Jesus is the Savior of the world. You notice that there in verse 3, Luke wants Theophilus to know that Jesus presented himself to them, that is to his disciples, after his sufferings by many proofs. Now a couple of things to note there. 
One, what are the sufferings that Luke is referring to? Well, here he's referring to the sufferings of the crucifixion of Jesus that led to Jesus' death. You know, that word suffering is actually used six times in Luke's gospel. And every time except once, it refers to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. It's in those sufferings, it's in that death of Jesus that Jesus was paying the penalty for our sin and taking our judgment and the death that we deserve. But Luke also wants Theophilus to know that that's not where things ended. That Jesus didn't remain in the grave, but he rose. He was resurrected. And so Luke says that after his sufferings, he presented himself alive by many proofs. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus present himself alive by many proofs? So that guys like Theophilus, and so that folks like you and me would believe that he's the Savior of the world. You know, there's a modern idea that the only reason why the disciples in the early church believed in the resurrection of Jesus is because they were uneducated and superstitious. The sense is, well, they would have believed in anything, right? But when you read the historical record, you find that that's not the case at all. In fact, when it came to the resurrection, at first the disciples were not quick believers, but they were deep skeptics. uh, What did they do after Jesus was resurrected? Do you you remember the accounts from the Gospels? They hid out, right? Or after Jesus died, that is. I said after he was resurrected, but after Jesus died, what did they do? They hid out. They were afraid. They were depressed. They were disillusioned. They had no expectation of resurrection after Jesus had died. They were sure that all this Messiah stuff that Jesus had been talking about was over and done with. And in fact, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, and when they heard the first reports, they didn't believe it. Luke, in his gospel, says that when they heard the first reports of the resurrection, they believed them to be idle tales. That's the way Luke speaks of it speaks of their response. And so this is the reason that Jesus then appears to them over and over again. We read it this morning. Gary read it for us at the end of the Gospel of Luke. He walks with them. He eats with them. He talks to them. He says, touch my flesh and look at my scars. It's me. It's me. And he appears to them over and over again. Why? Because initially they were skeptics who over time came to be deeply persuaded that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead and therefore was the Savior of the world. And listen, they had to get that. They had to settle in their own minds and hearts that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead because without the historical reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no gospel and there is no mission. Jesus is the mission. He defines the mission, the person of Jesus. We could say it this way, Christology precedes missiology. Who Jesus is comes before mission. you got to get Jesus right if you're going to get mission right. Who is Jesus? If He's the resurrected Savior of the world, then you've got a mission. If He's not, there is no mission. We can all go home. 
Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just say a quick word about this. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, I am really glad you're here. And what I want you to see here in these initial verses is that Luke is telling us that knowledge and historical evidence affirms faith and does not diminish it. Do you see that in the passage? And that's contrary to a popular understanding of faith. There's a modern notion that if someone is to be a person of faith, then they have to commit intellectual suicide. But Luke, what Luke is saying here in these opening verses is that in fact, the evidence for Jesus and for His resurrection is sufficient, and in fact it is persuasive. Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, and you don't have to lay your brain aside to follow Jesus. It's not a blind leap into the dark. Yes, it requires faith, but it's a faith that's reasonable and a faith that's justified given the historical record and evidence. He authenticated his resurrection by many proofs. Secondly, let's consider, first of all, Jesus is the mission. Who he is, his person, that he is the resurrected Christ, that that, um, makes mission necessary. Second, Jesus empowers the mission. This is found in verses 4 and 5 and then also in verse 8. Look there in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, here we see in these verses that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to empower His people for mission. Jesus tells His disciples they're to wait in Jerusalem, and upon His ascension to the Father, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, in in describing what's going to take place, He contrasts the baptism of John with the baptism that He will give of the Spirit. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying here is that in the same way John immersed you into the waters of baptism, I will immerse you into the Holy Spirit. You will be drenched in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's at this point that they will receive power to be witnesses, and so Jesus sends His Spirit in order to empower them for mission. Now, this is a reoccurring theme in the book of Acts. We'll see it emerge over and over again that the Holy Spirit is the power of the mission. It reminds us of the words of Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so if we are to be serious about mission, if we're serious about the mission of Jesus, then we should always be praying and seeking the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. James Boyce, in his commentary on the book of Acts, writes, quote, Some years ago I studied all the occurrences of the phrase filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. There are 14 of them, 10 of which refer to the present era. I looked at the circumstances in which these phrases occurred, and I discovered that in each case in which a person or a group of persons was filled with the Holy Spirit, the people involved immediately began to witness powerfully for Jesus Christ. End of quote. So so one of the things we learn about the work of the Holy Spirit, if we take Scripture as a whole, is that the work of the Holy Spirit is multifaceted. 
The, the work of the Holy Spirit brings about regeneration in the heart of a believer. The, the Holy Spirit reveals truth. The Holy Spirit bears the fruit of the Spirit in our life, like love and joy and peace and faithfulness and all the other fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit bears those fruits in our lives. But one of the important aspects of the Spirit's work in the believer's life is to empower the believer for witness. If we are, and we learn this from the book of Acts, if we are filled with the Spirit, then there should be a desire, there should be a restlessness within our souls to bear witness to Jesus, to share Him, to share His love and His redeeming work with those around us. We also learn as we study Scripture uh, about the work of the Holy Spirit, we also learn that the work of the Holy Spirit is to point to and to make much of Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is not to point to Himself, but it's to point to Jesus and to make much of Jesus. And so if we are filled with the Spirit, then we will be filled with the desire to point others to Jesus and encourage them to trust Him and to make much of Him. So my friends, let 2014 be a year in which we regularly pray for the presence and the power of God's Spirit in our lives and in the life of our church. Let's pray that we would be filled with the Spirit. And as a result, we'd be compelled to regularly speak to others about Christ and His salvation. So Jesus is the mission. Jesus empowers the mission as He sends His Holy Spirit third Jesus defines the mission. Look there in verses 6 through 8, and we read these words. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, Jesus promises the Spirit, and in response to Jesus' promise of the Spirit, the disciples ask about the restoration of the kingdom. When will it happen? And it's apparent from the disciples' question here that they still misunderstand the nature of the kingdom. Just a few things here regarding their understanding of the kingdom. They seem to still think of the kingdom in purely nationalistic terms. They speak of the kingdom as the kingdom of Israel, which was not altogether wrong. No doubt the kingdom would include Jews, but it was not strictly nationalistic, but universal. The salvation and the rule and the reign of Jesus, which was present, would extend to all peoples, to every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation. They also seem to think of the kingdom in primary political terms. So at that time, Rome was the oppressor, and they wanted Jesus to conquer Caesar and take the throne. You remember when Jesus stood trial before Pilate, he declared, my kingdom is not of this world. No doubt the kingdom would ultimately and will ultimately have physical expressions, but now, presently, it is fundamentally a spiritual reality. The kingdom will advance as Jesus rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. And as a result, it will transcend national boundaries and it will topple political regimes as it takes root in the hearts and the lives of God's people. In addition, they thought that the kingdom would come immediately, that it would come now. And the kingdom had come in Jesus and the kingdom would come in greater fullness with the coming of the Spirit. It would not be fully realized until Jesus returns. 
This is what some refer to as the already and not yet of the kingdom. It's here, it's present, but it hasn't come completely in its fullness. That we await when Jesus comes. And it will be fully realized when Jesus rules and reigns and makes all things new. Now notice as they ask this question about the kingdom, so Jesus is promising the Spirit, they're asking about the kingdom, when is the kingdom going to come? In response to the disciples' question, Jesus says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. So Jesus responds to their question by charging them with a mission. And the mission is to take the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to announce His salvation and His coming rule and reign to all peoples of the earth. As many of you know, this really here in verse 8, this mission serves as the outline for the rest of the book of Acts. So if you want a big picture view of the book of Acts in chapters 1 through 7, Luke records how the gospel takes root in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, Luke records how the gospel goes to Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 to 28, Luke records how the gospel makes its way to the ends of the earth. This is the mission. Jesus issues the mission. He defines the mission. And understand, we might have a lot of other great ideas about what the mission is or what the mission should be, but Jesus very clearly defines the mission. This is so important for us to remember because we are so prone to lose sight of the mission for other missions. I mean, this is evident with the disciples right here, right, as we record what's happening here. I mean, from the get-go, Jesus has to continually redirect their attention from other things to the mission. They're thinking about times and dates when the kingdom will come in all its glory. And Jesus says, that's not for you to know. Go, be my witnesses. Then in verses 9 through 11, which we'll get to in a few moments, Jesus ascends to the Father and we're told in verse 10 that they were gazing into the heavens as He went. In one sense, we can't blame them. That must have been quite remarkable to witness. But immediately we see an angel appears and says, Why are you gazing up into heaven? In the same way He went, He will come again. In other words, he's gone and he will come again. But in the meantime, you have work to do. You've been given a mission. Get on with it. Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples in these verses, I'm not calling you to be fortune tellers, but I'm calling you to be witnesses. I'm not calling you to predict the future, but to testify to the gospel. John Stott, a great New Testament commentator, writes these words, quote, There was something fundamentally anomalous or inconsistent about their gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. It was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. End of quote. It's one of the reasons why we need to study the book of Acts. So one of the reasons why we need to go through this book is because it's so easy for us to trade the mission for other missions, to forget the mission, and to be distracted from the mission. To stop going. To stop reaching out. To stop loving. To stop sharing. To stop making disciples. We need to be reminded what the mission is. We need the mission placed before us week after week and day after day. You know, this is the 
first Sunday of 2014. And I think one good question we can ask ourselves is what can we do in 2014 to align our lives with the mission? We're making plans as a church. We're preaching through the book of Acts, talking about mission. We're going to be talking about and studying mission in our home groups. We have ministry projects that are planned for this next year. We're planning to take a trip to Madagascar to deepen our partnership with the Snyders and to reach the Entendrui. There's other things as well that we're praying about, thinking through, planning for the next year. I'd encourage you as well, think about your own individual lives. This has to happen personally in our own lives. I'm trying in the process of putting a plan together for my own life for this next year. What relationships? These are some of the questions maybe would be helpful to think about. What relationships would be beneficial to pursue this next year? Who can you invest in? Who can you serve? Who can you pray for? Maybe just one or two people that you could pray for this next year that God would give you the opportunity to love and to serve and to share the gospel with. Now, one of the things we'll be talking about as well is that you don't always have to add something new to your schedule either. Uh, there's this principle, do what you do, but do it with gospel intentionality. So it's not even always just adding something to your schedule, but it's just taking what you already do, whether it's work or whether it's play or whatever it might be, and doing it in light of the mission that Christ has given us to make disciples. My friends, I encourage all of us, do not take the mission for granted. Jesus has defined the mission. And so how can we intentionally align our lives with the mission? Fourth, we see that Jesus completes the mission. This is in verses 9 through 11. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I want us to focus on on these verses, but before we do that, go back to verse 1 because it makes the same point. And we see there in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now that has implications. He says, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke wants Theophilus to know that Jesus' ministry did not conclude with the gospel of Luke. That was just the beginning The book of Acts is a continuation of that work. He began the work. I told you about that in the gospel that I wrote. But now I want to tell you about his continual work. You see, the the distinction between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is not as neat as the gospel of Luke is about the ministry of Jesus. The gospel or the book of Acts is about the church. Rather, Luke is about Jesus' earthly ministry and Acts is about Jesus' continual ministry through his church as the ascended, exalted Christ. He announces the mission and he will complete the mission as he continues his work. And then this is reaffirmed in the ascension, which we just read in verses 9 through 11. You see there in verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now that might not seem significant, but it actually is because that's a theme when it refers to him being taken up in a cloud. That's a theme that runs through the Bible. So if you go all the way back to Exodus, when God determined 
for His glory to dwell among His people in the tabernacle. We read in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See, the cloud was representation of the glory of God. And then when God determined for His glory to dwell among His people in the temple... We read in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then when Jesus was transfigured and He was shown in all His glory, He was physically manifested to His disciples. We read in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And then when Jesus speaks of His coming glorious return in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, He says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory and power. So the fact that Jesus ascended into a cloud has implications. Jesus could have parted and gone back to His Father any number of ways, but Jesus did not turn a corner on an abandoned street and they never saw Him again. Jesus didn't wander off into the woods, never to return. Jesus didn't ride off in the sunset like a cowboy. Instead, He was enveloped in a cloud, in the cloud of the glory of God and taken up into the heavens while His disciples looked on. And by the nature of His departure, it was clear to the disciples that their resurrected Lord was full of glory and unlimited power. This was the Jesus that they would proclaim. This was their commander-in-chief. This was the leader of the mission, the glorified, resurrected Christ who was enveloped in the glory of God, who would build His church and accomplish all His purposes. My friends, we need to have a similar vision of Christ if we are to be on mission for God. If not, we will fall prey to fear or passivity. Just think about it. I mean, if He's not supreme, if He's not sovereign, if He's not ruling, if He's not reigning, if He's not exalted, then we will be tempted to play it safe. We will be tempted to risk little. We will be tempted to turn back in the face of adversity. But if He is, in fact, the resurrected, supreme, sovereign, reigning, exalted Christ, then we can risk much and we can give freely. Christ ascended and He departed, but His presence, as we will see in the book of Acts, as the living, resurrected Christ fills this book as He builds His church through His apostles in the power of the Spirit. My friends, may we, be, may we pray and may we be confident as we look out into 2014 that His presence and His power would fill our lives and fill our church as we pursue mission for His glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You and praise You that the mission is so clear. And Lord, we thank You and praise You that we are not left to ourselves to complete this mission, but that You empower us by Your Spirit and by the sovereign, reigning, exalted Christ, it will be accomplished. And so, Father, we pray that You would, by Your Spirit, 
move in our own hearts. Give us a passion and a desire to be faithful to this calling and to this mission to make much of Christ and to share this good news with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family, to the ends of the earth. May we be faithful to do that for your glory. And Father, in doing so, may we be entirely dependent upon your Spirit and full of confidence, knowing that Christ rules and reigns and is sovereign and supreme and that He will accomplish all that we cannot do. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.